this morning from Colossians 3, living a holy life with a holy mind. We live now as Christians, as citizens of a better nation, awaiting the return of our Lord and Savior. This life as a Christian is different than the life we lived before. In this, God has called us to now live in a manner that is consistent with our calling in Christ. So this manner of living is what Peter has been describing for the better part of two chapters. Just looking back at what he's written most recently before our passage tonight, beginning in chapters, chapter 2, verse 13, he's given direction in four specific contexts of relationships addressing their conduct. Citizens living under human institutions, servants, wives, and then husbands. And now in our passage tonight, he draws Christians back together describing the Christ-honoring conduct that results in what Peter describes as a blessing from God. So what marks this path of this blessing? And what does Scripture say about living this good life? Well, let's read our text. Beginning in verse 8 of chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so we see, first of all, in verse 8, we've got five descriptions here that Peter gives for Christian relationships that paint this picture of a Christian family um, and what it should look like, how we're to interact with each other as Christians, and it gives us this small taste of the good glory of God in this world, regardless of the circumstances that we're facing. But there's several things we need to keep in mind as we work through verse 8, specifically right here at the start. As we look at these descriptions, we might be tempted to look at these descriptions that these are a way to be a part of God's family. That by doing these things, we can become Christians, that we can become part of the family of God. Well, we won't by living this way. That would be putting the cart before the horse. Trying to live your life according to any of these descriptions we just read in verse 8 is never going to make you part of the family of God. We don't act like 1 Peter 3.8 to be a Christian. We act like 1 Peter 3.8 because we are a Christian. And the only way to be a part of God's family is by confessing your sins before God and asking him to forgive your sins through the work and person of Jesus Christ alone, then as the Spirit of God indwells in us, he enables and he empowers us to live like what we see here in verse 8. And there's something else we need to keep in mind as we read through this particular verse. We might be tempted to really emphasize internally one or two of these descriptions that really seem more natural to us. Some may be harder than others for us to, um, to live and, and adhere to. 
But we need to understand just by simple reading of this passage, we know they're all interact, interconnected with each other. Just by the simple word, at the end of verse 8, he uses and. Peter doesn't use or, he uses and. So all of these descriptions here are all tied together. And this brings us to our third um, thing we need to keep in mind as we look at this tonight. We know that order is important when we're studying scripture, but that order is not always a linear order. And we see something, we see a pattern in this particular passage, this particular verse of verse eight, what's called a chiasm, where you have specifically the first term that he uses, unity of mind, also relates to the last term that he uses, a humble mind. They both help us understand one another. They help define each other. And so we can use one to define the other. We can use the last term to define the first term. Then we can look at the second term, sympathy, look at the second to last term, a tender heart, and use them both to define each other. And they all work towards that single center foundational term in this list, brotherly love. And so we're going to use that chiastic pattern tonight as we go through and look at each of these, these terms tonight. The first term, unity of mind, it's like-minded, might be a term that we're more familiar with. Caleb even mentioned that in his prayer earlier. It's the idea of similar thinking. The original Greek word sounds a lot like harmonious, and some of you may have a translation that uses harmonious instead of unity of mind. But what matters to the Lord and what can impact our testimony in either a good or a bad way is whether or not we're harmonious with one another looking to our perfect example in Jesus Christ. Peter's already told us this in chapter 2, verse 19. For this is the gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He's the perfect example. And in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus gives us some insight into his own desires and longing for Christians. You don't need to turn there, but in John 17, verse 21, Jesus prays to the Father that all Christians would be one, just as he and the Father are one. Of all the things that Jesus could pray for you and me, he prays for our unity. Unity in our churches, unity in our marriages, and unity in every Christian relationship that we have. And we see this emphasized by Paul in his letter to the Ephesian church as he urges them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul didn't tell them to create the unity. They already had that by the Spirit. They were to maintain the unity that God had given them. And so this doesn't mean that we think the same way on everything. We can have different opinions on politics, food, music, sports teams, but it does mean that together we pursue God's desires. We pursue his plan. We pursue his truth. We put aside our preferences. We put aside our plans and affections and we seek the will of God. We seek to please him over our own desires. And we have unity and peace and harmony centered around the truth of scripture and who God is even in the midst of these diverse opinions on other things. That's unity of mind. Now let's look not at the second description, but using that, that chiastic pattern, let's look at the 
um, the last description, a humble mind. The only way you really have unity is when you have humility. And true humility is a uniquely Christian virtue. The basis for biblical humility really has to do with our proper view of ourselves because we realize that we're really just a creature. We've been created. I've been created, you've been created. And we stand together as created beings dependent on the mercy and grace of God who is the creator of all things. That understanding of our dependence on him is the first step in maintaining the unity that God has given us by his spirit. It isn't that I simply humble myself to you and you simply humble yourself to me. We do this, but our minds ultimately humble themselves together as a created beings, mindful of the creator's ways. And when we do this, there's no boasting. There's no bragging except in Christ because he's given us everything that we have. So now look at the second description in verse 8, sympathy. It shares the same root word as suffering that's the core theme of Peter's first epistle. Here, though, Peter is applying this to the relationships with other believers who are likely hurting. It describes how we're to care deeply for other believers. We even participate so closely with them that we feel their sorrows. We feel their grieving. It's more than a knowledge that a Christian is suffering. It's a feeling that we have. We feel what they feel. And so that is Paul wrote, that's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians and why he wrote it. If one member suffers, all suffer together. When we Christians face the painful realities of living in a sinful world, we should weep and mourn. But we shouldn't allow that sorrow to drive us into despair because we as blood-bought Christians don't stare into the destruction of sin and death without hope like the rest of mankind does. We should show sympathy toward fellow Christians as they confess their pains, their hurts, and even their sins to us. We grieve over pain, the loss of a loved one, broken relationships. We grieve with them as we point them to the mercy that's found in Christ. And we should show sympathy to those who are struggling to overcome past hurts and that are even bombarded with the sting of someone else's sin. Sympathy is similar to a tender heart that we see in our list, the second to last term. Both a tender heart and sympathy speak to our compassion, our deep concern and care for one another through difficult times. We recognize that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, so we act in a manner that's not quick to chastise. It's not quick to criticize, but we give grace, we extend care, and we show sympathy. And how can we respond with such a tender heart? Because we've been treated with such a tender love by our Savior. We've experienced the mercy of God through the forgiveness of our own sins. As mentioned earlier, the third description in the very middle of verse 8 is the foundation for all these things. You can really apply brotherly love to each of the four descriptions we've just talked about. And Peter in these five descriptions is, again, painting that picture of a Christian family and what a family picture looks like. This love, though, is a love that is only common among family members. This love may even surpass our love for our own blood relatives. And it can do that because this love is defined by Jesus himself. 
He's the standard for this love. He's the one that we follow. Peter's already talked about this type of love back in chapter 1, verse 22. And because we've already uh, studied that um, several weeks ago, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But I do think it's important for us to look at some of the descriptions Peter uses back in that passage to help us understand now how he's defining and describing and using this term, brotherly love. In uh, 1 Peter 1.22, Peter gives us the first word, sincere love. That's how he describes it. It's not hypocritical. It's true. It's honest. It's devoted Christian love. He also describes it by using the word earnestly. Love one another earnestly. This speaks to an intense effort required to truly love somebody. The root of the word is a straining similar to how a sprinter strains for a finish line. Earnest Christian love doesn't just happen, and it's much more than an emotion or a thought or a feeling. It's a choice, and it takes a huge amount of effort. A sprinter doesn't have to strain themselves like they do, but they choose to do it. And this earnest love also acts as a shock absorber. It acts as a shock absorber for the difficulties that we even face within our own Christian community. We know that even as Christians, we'll face trials within our Christian relationships. But this brotherly love softens those moments and helps absorb some of the shock and extreme struggles in those moments. So the unity of the Spirit is maintained. And thirdly, in chapter 1, verse 22, Peter uses the phrase, from a pure heart, to describe this love. It's not a love that's influenced by personal pride or preferences or pursuits. We don't allow our personal desires to dictate how we interact with one another. Instead, we treat one another with humility and we consider others as better than ourselves. This affection that is shared between brothers and sisters represents the love that God has shown us in Christ. It shows itself then in the way that we bear each other's burdens, the way we care for one another, and the way that we give generously to the needs of others, the way that we gladly give up our preferences to maintain unity among the body of Christ. So that what the world ultimately sees is not a bunch of carbon copies of people getting together and doing things. No, they see a bunch of different people coming together and getting along and loving each other with this kind of love, this kind of love that's defined by God, not by man. And they're drawn to the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that we share in Christ. Now, in verse 9 of our passage tonight, Peter moves to this Christ-like character that isn't practiced within the Christian community. This now transitions to our interactions with unbelievers. It says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And certainly these problems can take place within the Christian community, within the church. But in the context of Peter's first epistle, it seems to make more sense that this is focused on relationships outside of that community. As these original Christian readers were being persecuted because of their faith. But even in 2023, as we have evil done to us or we're reviled for righteous behavior and actions, revenge should never be our response. Just consider our modern world for a second. Consider the, the tone of what we hear on the news, 
headlines, what we see on social media, different videos we see. We hear our modern world screaming about personal rights. We may even experience this cancel culture. If we disagree with someone else, then we're suddenly cut off from any communication with them, any kind of conversation. We see not just peaceful protesting, but we see violence and we see riots centered on all kinds of individualistic views. And in this world, there's very little humility, sympathy, or tenderheartedness like what we've just read about within the Christian community. But when it comes to our individual rights, Peter's reminded us already that we should recognize that as citizens of God's kingdom, we forego our individual rights because we are no longer living for ourselves. We've been purchased through the blood of Christ and we live for him. Peter's shown us how our identity as a follower of Christ is not one of rebellion, but it's one of a suffering servant. So if a wrong has been done to us, what do we do? The short answer is that we commit the case to the Lord and let him handle it. Let him make all things right. After all, that's the example of Jesus Christ. Peter told us back in chapter 2, verse 23, speaking of Christ, Peter said, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, if we're to stop there, that's hard enough, right? To not repay evil for evil, not repay reviling with reviling. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on. Look at the middle of verse 9. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. When evil and reviling come our way, our instruction is not to put our Christian heads down and ignore it, having no response at all. We do submit the case to the Lord, but we're called to respond to this evil in a particular way. We're called to respond to reviling with something. Peter says in verse 9 that we're to repay this with a blessing. And so here we have our second calling that Peter identifies for us as Christians. We saw a few weeks ago in studying in chapter 2, 18 through 25, our calling to suffer. In our suffering of evil and reviling towards us for living for Christ, our response is then not to ignore it or be idle, but to bless those that commit evil towards us. So what does this blessing look like in response to evil? The same root for, word for blessing, root word for blessing, is what we read in the Beatitudes from Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love, that the root word for love there in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, is the same root word from 1 Peter. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke 6, 28 says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. This was modeled by Christ himself as he was dying on the cross as he uttered the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Alan helped us with this picture a couple of weeks ago as he opened chapter 3 and how 
a Christian wife's respectful and pure conduct as a testimony to her unbelieving husband. As a Christian wife is to pray for the salvation of her unbelieving husband, so Peter now says all of you, not just wives, all of you bless and pray that the unbelievers that push evil and reviling your way may experience the blessing of salvation that you've already experienced. And beloved, this response of blessing in the moment of evil is really impossible. It's impossible and it's foolish to those who are not in God's family and don't have the Spirit of God. But for those of us who do have the Spirit, it's our calling. This is our life. And we're empowered by the all-powerful Spirit of living God to do what is, is impossible for man. And ultimately, as hard and painful as it may be, it's for our good because we, when we confirm conform to the image of Christ and confirm our calling and election to use the language of 2 Peter, then it has an amazing outcome in our lives. Look at the end of verse 9. That you may obtain a blessing. Now this doesn't mean that the way we obtain a blessing is through our good works towards others. That's not what Peter's saying. We don't bless in order to receive a blessing. Instead, what this points us to is that our doing good to others confirms our calling as a Christian. And it's God's calling us to salvation that grants us and gives us this inheritance. Peter's already made this clear back in chapter 1 that we have this inheritance kept in heaven for us. That's the blessing. But now Peter points us to the substance of that blessing. It's the present promise of a living hope that finds its fulfillment in a future inheritance. And this has always been God's plan from the days of the Old Testament all the way to July 2nd, 2023. We see this in our passage next as Peter reinforces his claim by applying an Old Testament principle as he now quotes from Psalm 34 in verses 10 through 11. And before we jump into those three verses, let's just ask the question, why Psalm 34? Blake outlined Psalm 34 for us on a Sunday morning back at the start of June. Peter shows us that God is the same God today as he was in years past. He works in the same way today as he did in the days of David. And as Don Carson writes, just as God delivered David from the dangers implicit in his sojourn among the Philistines, so also God will deliver Peter's Christian readers from the sojourn among their pagan communities. But they are to make no mistake. God cherishes righteousness and promises ultimate judgment on the wicked. All our trials, all our pains, all that hurt remind us that this world isn't our home. And the goodness of God is not seen in our immediate circumstances, but it's seen in God's covenant faithfulness. I'm going to say that again. The goodness of God is not seen in our immediate circumstances, but it's seen in God's covenant faithfulness. And so Peter's using Psalm 34 to remind us that the circumstances of life are always going to have their ups and downs. But our hope doesn't rest in these things. And so looking at verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Why? 
because those who do good for the sake of God's name will be rewarded by him with good days ahead. And Peter uses the words of David here from Psalm 34 to anchor our hope in God's future blessing, those good days that are yet to come. The good life that God has called us to that is eternally connected with our life and faith as we live in obedience to God now. And in that faith and obedience, our true faith is refined and revealed through trials and suffering, meaning that the most painful and difficult circumstances in this life give us the prime opportunity to show the faith that God has given us is genuine. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Verse 11 is calling us to action now. Turn, do, seek, pursue. It's a conscious decision and effort that's made to reject sin and to seek after righteousness so that when that enticing image pops up on the screen, we turn away from evil. When your spouse makes a hurtful comment towards you, you don't lash out in return. You turn away from evil. When someone cuts you off in traffic on Rogers Avenue, you don't lash out. I'm not going to say turn the other way because I don't want a bunch of wrecks on Rogers Avenue. But friends, holy living never just happens. It isn't idle. Living the holy life is always the result of spirit-empowered intentional choices. We see those choices in verses 10 and 11. Those who guard their lips prove they're trusting in the Lord to right the wrong that's been done. Those who seek peace with others prove they're living at peace with God. Those who bless those who revile them are extending the same forgiveness that they've experienced through the mercies of God. How important is this? Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Tom Schreiner points out, the Lord's favor rests on those who are righteous. We're righteous through the work of Christ, and we show that we are righteous through the work of Christ in the way we pursue righteousness in our lives. And Schreiner continues speaking of God. He turns his face forever on those that practice evil. Living a godly life does not earn salvation, but it is evidence of it. Peter was hardly suggesting that believers lived perfectly and that such perfection is necessary to attain an inheritance. But he was insisting that a transformed life is necessary to attain the inheritance. How necessary is that? The Apostle John, near the end of the book of Revelation, in verse, chapter 21, verse 27, in speaking of the city that we long for, that will one day be revealed to us, John says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is why we're called to live the good life, the God-honoring life so that we show our calling to be genuine. This good life, it's good because God is working all things for the ultimate good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. We may not see, see it now when our circumstances arise, but we can be confident that he is good 
because he says he is. This life is also glorious because one day we will see the unveiled glory of God when we see our Savior face to face. At that moment, our faith will become silent and will bow down before the throne as grateful servants of a good and glorious master. So, beloved, the only way we can go and do as these verses tonight instruct us is because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. As we've just seen, he is our example, and he is how we're able to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He is how we're able to not respond to evil and reviling in like manner, but instead we bless those who push evil our way. This Lord, this Savior, died for our sins, making our identity not in ourselves, but in him. And in just a few minutes, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper as an expression of the unity among us. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity to examine our hearts with the help of the Holy Spirit. It's time for us to come together in unity, proclaiming the truth of the gospel and the saving death of Jesus Christ. It's time for us, a, a time for us to embrace him together tonight. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these words. We thank you for the words and the chapters before this that do heart and mind work. But we thank you even for the go and do messages that are in scripture. And so, Father, as we consider these things tonight, I pray that we would always look to our example, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.